Well, friends, when I was uh, in Iraq a few years back, I remember seeing on the ground a pack of cigarettes, an old used pack of cigarettes. And on that pack of cigarettes was a giant label that said, in English, no less, smoking kills. The, pa- the, 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 the warning label was so big it took up, you couldn't even see whoever made the cigarettes. It was huge. It was that big and just said, smoking kills. Uh, you couldn't purchase those cigarettes in Iraq without at least being warned of the danger of smoking. I also remember playing when I played college baseball and every year we would have a health official come in and explain to us the dangers of chewing tobacco. Uh, it was awful. Most of the time these guys that would use, they wouldn't use for a couple weeks and then they'd just go right back because of the images that they saw. But at least they did so because they were warned, right? They were give given a warning. And I wish it was possible to put a warning label on living in America. And if I could, if I could put a warning label on living in America, I'd want a number of warning labels. But one of those warning labels would be really clear self-indulgence kills. Self-indulgence kills. Every time you bought a new car... You'd have a big bumper sticker and you'd have to wipe it off. Every time you bought a new house, it'd be on the front door. You'd have to scrape it off every single time. Southwest Airlines and Delta Airlines or Kayak would have in 46-point font on their landing page, self-indulgence kills. The banks, for sure the banks, right, put on their self-indulgence kills. Our economic position here in America, friends, is a tremendous blessing. A tremendous blessing. I am not at all regretful that I live in a place and a time where food and shelter and gainful employment is readily available. I thank God for that. And you should too. The economic blessings of America are easy to identify. Of course, having money is not wrong, but friends, it is dangerous. It is dangerous. That's why we need that warning label. With so much possibilities of luxury here, it's very easy to lose sight of the danger of living for the American dream, all the while assuring ourselves that we believe the gospel and safe when we're not. Enter the book of James. He will provide for us this morning the warning label of living for self-indulgence. And I'll go ahead and warn you. I've had numerous people come to me this morning even say, Nathan, we've been praying for you in light of this passage. This passage is sort of like medicine. It's not going to taste good going down, but it is good for you. It is healthy for you if you'll listen and obey. Big idea this morning, simple. It's that warning label. Self-indulgence kills. That's the big idea. Self-indulgence kills. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually read from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19 to 24. You're going to notice it's going to sound almost exactly like Matthew, or sorry, James 5. So I'll read Matthew 6, and then I'll read our passage for today, James 5. So here's Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 19 to 24 says this. This is the words of Christ. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now James chapter 5. Verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Three points this morning. Explanation, warning, exhortation. So this first point, the explanation, I'm just going to explain the passage. And then there will be kind of two applications that will be a warning and an exhortation. So here's the first. Self-indulgence kills. Here's the explanation of the passage itself. You can see where I'm getting that language of self-indulgence from verse 5 there. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Self-indulgence, self-indulgence meaning to live for whatever pleases you. This notion of hedonism that we've talked about the last few weeks. It's exactly what James says back up in James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that passions, the word there is uh, pleasures, well, that passions or pleasures are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So living for self-indulgence, friends, means you live primarily for what you want with only a secondary concern, if at all, for the commands of Christ. Now let's do a little bit of context for our passage here in James 5. Ever since, you remember way back in James 1, 22, and by the way, if you're visiting with us this morning, if you came back last week and had this encouraging message about the risen Christ, uh, we've been walking through the book of James for months now. There's cards in the front and the back, and you can see the schedule of what we're doing. This is the beauty of consecutive exposition. We are forced to deal with these passages as they come to us. They set the agenda, not the pastor. But just to set the context of what we've been seeing, you remember way back in James 1.22, James said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then he's been spending the rest of the time talking about what it looks like to be a doer of the word. He's been laser focused on helping us understand what authentic Christianity looks like in everyday life. He's helping us see that to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is to live countercultural from the world around us. He's been helping us see it's not enough just to say you believe the gospel. He's been helping us see you have to also obey the gospel. And we've thought about the fact that he, he's taught us that we ought not be partial, but to love all, not just your particular group. You're supposed to tame your tongue, not be gossiping, slandering, and the like. 
You're to be living in the wisdom from above, not the wisdom from below. We don't simply obey our inner passions, but we obey the Lord Jesus's passion for us. He's been teaching us we don't try and fit into the world because to do so is to be hostile to the world that crucified Christ. We live for the world to come. We are strangers and aliens here, as is evidenced by how we live. That's what we've been seeing. Therefore, going back to the passage that precedes this, this is two weeks ago, the passage that Joey preached a couple weeks ago. We don't plan business trips and vacation trips as though our will is the primary concern. Our lives are like vapor on this earth. And so we should learn to say, if the Lord wills, I'll be here, I'll go here, I'll do that, whatever. In other words, we live primarily for the Lord's will in our lives, not primarily for our own will. This is authentic Christianity. And this is not a burden because we as Christians know and believe that the good life is found in Christ in his kingdom. Not in the kingdom we try to build for ourselves. We live for the eternal joy of the new Jerusalem. Not for the fleeting pleasures that are personified in the so-called New York, as it were. So James continues his assault upon the wealthy in these verses. You'll notice right from the beginning, look in James 5.1. You'll notice the come now is repeating from back up in chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, he says... And right from the top, we get the audience of James, the rich. Come now, rich. Now, again, these are not just rich out in the world. These are rich that are claiming to be Christians. Go all the way back to James chapter 1, verse 1. He's writing to the dispersion. This is Pastor James writing to his old congregation. These are rich claiming Christ. There's his audience. All right, what's his counsel? Weep and howl. That's his counsel. Cry and moan. Why? Well, for the miseries, he says, that are coming upon you. Well, what are those miseries? Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. There's the miseries. In other words, all the things that they are living for are food for insects. And rust that turns into dust in the ground. Their misery is the death of all those things That they've been living for. But it's not just their stuff that's withering and rusting. In many ways, that's even the least of some of their miseries. What's worse is, what's worse is the expensive and voluminous amounts of, say, garments in their closets and the money they've been living for will not only feed the eternal fires of God's judgment, but also, more importantly, the money and clothes will so inflame the fires of hell they will serve to burn their own flesh as well. You can see that in verse 3 of chapter 5. In other words, the luxurious items that brought the wealthy pleasure will be the wooden logs to feed the, feed the fires of hell's judgment upon their idolatry. The luxury that gave them pleasure in this vapor life was the gas that fueled their own eternal judgment they enjoyed the cigarette for a spell but the cost was eternal lung cancer now after this james goes on to describe why it's so foolish to live with friendship to the world like this he goes on to describe it he gives two descriptions and two results two descriptions and two results the two descriptions are there in verse three and verse five 
The description are there in verse 3. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And so this, these descriptions put into perspective what living for self-indulgence on the earth does. It's the equivalent of buying the best clothes, the most luxurious room, and the finest wine for a few hours on the Titanic. Let me describe that phrase there, last days, in verse 3. Last days in the New Testament is exactly what James will go on to reference. We'll think about this next week, Lord willing, in verses 7, 8, and 9. Last days is in reference to the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord is the final step of the plan of redemption. That's why the authors call it the last days, because every day from the ascension of Christ until his return are the final days of God's eternal plan of redemption. In other words, there's only one promise left left to be fulfilled. Every other one has already been fulfilled. There's only one left. And so these are the final days until that one comes. Only one chapter left to be written. That chapter is when Jesus returns to the earth to have as he prayed that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus returns and he eternally judges Satan and destroys all evil and all those in league with evil by their opposition to Christ. By putting them all, as he returns, putting them all into eternal judgment of hell. But that's not all, friends. He not only, when Jesus returns, he not only brings judgment, he also brings blessing. He blesses all those who were purchased by his blood on the cross by turning this world back into Eden. Where all those that are in Christ get to have resurrected bodies living on a resurrected earth, worshiping and enjoying a resurrected Savior for eternity. Where God will dwell with man and there will be no death anymore and God will be all and in all. That is what is wrapped up in the coming day of the Lord. Eternal judgment and eternal blessing. Therefore, these are the last days because that's the only, that's what's left to happen. The only thing left to happen. And so therefore, living indulgently for these last days is foolish since it all burns up. As Jesus says of the fool that built bigger barns to relax, eat, and be merry. He says, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? No U-Hauls in the back of hers. Why would you live for this world when it is but a vapor and the world to come is forever? Why would you live for the temporary when you know that forever is coming? Okay. So we've seen that the audience is those rich taking the name of Christ, living for their indulgence. We've seen the warning, weep and howl at the miseries coming upon you. We've seen what those miseries are, that the stuff in their own lives will live in eternal judgment. And we have a description. We have why those miseries are coming. Because they are, in effect, buying tickets for pleasures on the Titanic, knowing it's about to sink. Living for this world, not for the world to come. And so finally, then, we now have the effect. What happens the miseries are coming, but what happens, what, 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 what does this do? What does living like this, what does it do for the person? What do they wind up doing? The effect of living like this. He goes on to describe that. 
If you're living for indulging yourself, if that's your goal, if that's the great end of your life, then it would only make sense, guys, that you would then use other people to satisfy the end of your own indulgence. If self-indulgence is your God, be it your confessed one or your operational one, if indulgence is your God, then you'll use people, you'll condemn people, and you'll even murder people to get what you want. Take a look at verse 4. We see there, they fraudulently or deceitfully keep uh, the money from their employees that have been mowing their grass. They keep it for themselves. Dudes out there working, they keep their wages for themselves. They use them. Also there in verse 4, the pain from those being treated like that, deceitfully and harmfully, those laborers, their cries rise up to the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts is language, Lord of the armies. Their cries of those labors as they're being treated like that, it rises up to the ears of the Lord of hosts. And let me just say briefly, if that's you this morning, if you're one of those ones being deceived, uh, being dealt with fraudulently, if you're being abused in some way, I hope this word encourages you. That the God of heaven, he sees, he knows. If you are being used or abused, God hears your cries as he did to the, as he did in the Jews of old in Egypt. And he will deal with it. It will not go unanswered. I hope that you're encouraged by that this morning. But there's more evidence of the rich person's idolatry, more evidence, more effects described as evidence of their condemnation. You see it in verse 6. We see that because they are so devoted to self-indulgence that they not only use their employees and hold back their monies for themselves, they also condemn and murder the righteous person. Now, whether or not the murder there is literal or figurative is not readily clear. But either way, the point James is making is these these rich people who are taking the name of Christ, since they are the ones being addressed in this letter, right? They are hiring people and making them work, not paying them what they're due, while also condemning and murdering the righteous among them. This, friends, is the effect of living for self-indulgence. Eventually, it leads to hurting people and using people in order to get what indulgence wants. And again, this activity is no zero-sum game. As we've said, doing so corrodes the soul. In other words, living like this kills you. So maybe a good thing to do at this point would be to ask the question, what's an example of this that we might be more familiar with? What's an illustration Something like this. Well, it's fairly easy to find one. It's probably come up in half of you this morning's mind as we've talked about this already. The easy and obvious example of something like this is the chattel slavery that existed in America. So obvious example. Chattel slavery where people took the name of Christ, people who often took the name of Christ, and at the very same time bought people, oftentimes Christians, by the way, bought righteous people or persons oftentimes and made them work without paying them what they were due for the aim of using their labor to live for their own self-indulgence. As it has been said, friends, America's original sin is not slavery. It's the love of money. Just like these rich persons here. When who we abuse people as laborers, not as ends of themselves, but in order to build their own personal wealth, to feed their own appetite for luxury. 
And again, as if this wasn't tragic enough, these people are claiming oftentimes to be born again. These people are claiming to be people that are hearing the word, but evidently, in the words of James, they are not doing the word. And they are therefore deceiving themselves. Frederick Douglass describes these so-called Christians chillingly in his autobiography in a way that sounds almost exactly like James. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Listen to how Frederick Douglass, an abolitionist in the 19th century, described. He says, quote, I love, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. He says, we have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The man who robs me of my earnings at the end of each week meets me as a class leader on Sunday morning to show me the way of life and the path of salvation. He who sells my sister for purposes of prostitution stands forth as the pious advocate of purity. He who proclaims it a religious duty to read the Bible denies me the right of learning to read the name of God who made me. He who is the religious advocate of marriage robs whole millions of its sacred influence. We see the thief preaching against theft and the adulterer against adultery. We have men sold to build churches, women sold to support the gospel, and babies sold to purchase Bibles for the poor heathen and all for the glory of God and the good of souls. This is evil of the wickedest kind. Ought to make us angry. This is the kind of thing that James is writing against. And again, so that we are not confused about the heart of the problem. The source of this kind of evil that is and will be corroded eternally in hell. The source is the desire for luxury and self-indulgence on the earth. There's the problem. Paul said, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, all kinds of evil. To be clear, money is not evil, but the love of money is because it leads you to use people and ignore God and his people. Money is dangerous. And so, before getting to the warning and exhortation, let me summarize again what James has said. There is a wrong behavior, a wrong behavior which is, as he says, committing fraud and condemning and murdering the righteous person. Wrong behavior. And that is carried out. The wrong behavior is carried out because of a wrong motive, which is to accumulate wealth and all that wealth can purchase for the self. And that motive is built upon a wrong vision of the good life. Wrong behavior carried out by a wrong motive built upon a wrong vision of the good life. 
And that vision is the idea that luxury and self-indulgence is life in peace. And this wrong vision leads to eternal death. Therefore, the warning, weep and howl for the miseries coming upon you. Wrong behavior built upon a wrong motive for earthly wealth that is driven by the wrong vision of the good life, self-indulgence, that results in eternal death. All right, there's the explanation. Two-part application, first the warning, then the exhortation. Here's the warning. The reality is, friends, none of us in this room, more than likely, are to the degree of the people that Frederick Douglass describes. But, friends, we should know and be warned that the seed of that behavior remains among us. Though a sapling oak is not yet mighty, it is still an oak. We may have done away with chattel slavery, but luxury driven by a desire for unrestrained self-indulgence is still rampant among us, even among confessing Christians. It is taught to us every day in this teaching on the American dream. From the five hours of TV the average American watches to the billion, the $30 billion that is collectively spent every year in this country to watch movies. To the average of two hours a day we spend on social media. Friends, the world is discipling us every day to indulge ourselves on whatever pleases us. The world is not neutral. It is actively discipling you. And what they tell you in the midst of this is indulge yourself, indulge yourself, and don't let anyone, let alone some Baptist preacher, tell you otherwise. Friends, we would be fools to think It hasn't had its effect upon us all at some level. From furniture to food to sex, you and I are told we deserve it all. And whatever we want will be what satisfies us. That's what we're told. But for, of course, it never does. They're not going to tell you that. There's one place, one place, one place where you should be able to go And be told the truth. And that's right here. We're going to tell you that's not true. That's why we need this gathering so much. I need it. You need it. Multi-billion dollar companies hold their finger to the wind of the culture. And advocate for whatever whatever is popular. Not because they agree or disagree. But because they want to profit from you. They will condemn the righteous person if it means they can fatten their hearts in these last days. You need to know that. Be warned against the basic ethos underlying our life together in this corner of God's world. Living inside of the American dream of a comfortable life full of ease and travel and food and fun will slowly, often indiscernibly, corrode your own soul from the inside out. Guys, look where James is going at the end of his letter. He knows where this goes. And I want you to know as I speak this stuff to you, I speak to myself as much as I do you, right? This is the water we swim in. I'm, I'm affected in this just as much as you are. The reality is most of us in this room would qualify as being wealthy in comparison to not only the world today, 
but in the world of history. Most of us would be considered in this room the kind of wealthy in the world. But as soon as I mention wealth, I want to come back to this again. I want to be clear about something. Simply being rich is not the problem. Right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Job, all wealthy. Joseph of Marimathea, evidently wealthy. Lydia, wealthy. The Bible never condemns wealth. The Bible condemns people who live for wealth with little or no regard to Christ and his kingdom and his commands. The verse I always turn to on this is 1 Timothy 6, 17, where Paul writes to Timothy and he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Note the words, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So God's word does not say, as for the rich in this age, sell it all and become poor. It's not what it says. He says, don't be proud. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. He goes on to say, be rich in good works and be ready to be generous. And so the warning comes to those who take the name of Christ and yet live to serve what money can buy them. That's the problem. We just sort of give Jesus and his people whatever the leftovers are. So friends, setting your affections upon money and what money can buy you is defined in our day as the good life. But in reality, it is the bad life because that teaching is literal setting hope on moth food and rust. Nobody can take it with them. And I'll give it to you from those that have achieved the American dream. Listen to them themselves. Here's just a few examples of the people that have achieved this wealth, this luxury. Listen to it from their own mouth. W.H. Vanderbilt said, The care of $2 million is enough to kill anyone. John Jacob Astor, who, by the way, died in the Titanic. He was a real estate mogul, said, quote, I am the most miserable man on earth. John D. Rockefeller said, quote, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Andrew Carnegie says, quote, millionaires seldom smile. Henry Ford said, quote, I was happier when doing a mechanics job. Elon Musk said, I have had great highs, terrible lows and unrelenting stress. Now, friends, the reality is most of us in this room are not seeking to get a kind of luxury that those guys achieved. I'm assuming that's not what most of us are out to do. Many of us are not looking to get to these levels, but we are tempted to live for the basic American dream of safety and comfort and maybe not necessarily extravagant luxury. And guys, I know this struggle. As I said, I struggle with it myself. I wrestle with it myself. And I I wrestle with it as one that one day long ago, I've tasted the American dream. Andy and I, after we were married, bought a four-bedroom, 2,500-square-foot house right outside of Atlanta, Georgia, on a cul-de-sac close to family. She and I both were able to have large expense accounts and travel all over the country. I ate at the finest restaurants. I had it all. And all of it, friends, was 50-cent ramen noodles compared to selling all of that 
and eating upon the filet mignon of knowing Christ inside of a healthy local church in a tiny little apartment in Wake Forest, North Carolina. When Christ gave me and my wife a vision for what the good life actually was, when I tasted that, I've seen that it is far better than that flimsy so-called dream. And so have a number of you. I've watched it in your life, and I thank God for that. But if you haven't, if you have still desired to live for this American dream of a nice house, a nice car, plenty of vacations with a savings account that makes you feel safe, something I'm tempted to do too, and I fail at time to time. If you still are tempted to live for that, that's your goal, with just a dash of the gospel on top of the substance of the American dream. If that's you. If you're living, if this is what you're living for, setting your hopes upon, be warned. Such desires will kill you, body, soul, and spirit. Again, slowly, often indiscernibly from the inside out. The love of money and what money can buy you comes with roots to the ground of the earth. Day by day, the roots sink further and further into the world. And as it does, your heart grows taller and taller and taller, more and more proud. And as it does, like any tree, you die slowly. Till eventually you are cut down and cut up and thrown into the fuel as fire. Forever apart from the eternal pleasures of Christ in hell. And as for those that are here this morning that may be skeptics and think that all this kind of talk is for the old time revival preachers. You think that this is all just kind of manipulation and elementary thinking and foolish tradition. I ask you one question. What do you make of Jesus? What do you make of him? Is he, was he the Lord of heaven and earth? You've got to wrestle with that. Did he rise from the grave or not? Because if he is nothing more than some fanciful invention of the disciples of old, then yes, you should ignore these words, lean into the American dream, get as much as you can, die and be forgotten. If this is all just a made up thing. But if Jesus is who he said he is. And he has done what he said he will do. And will do what he said he will do. Well then you have reason to listen to these words friend. Listen to the words of his messenger in Revelation 3.17. You heard Chris pray it. For you say I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing Not realizing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, what what this means is that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked as it relates to that which is eternally good, holy, and beautiful. That's what it means. With your hands full of the things of the earth, you stand impoverished before the God of heaven and earth. And therefore, you should weep and howl at the miseries that are coming upon you. Try and imagine with me, friend, if that's you. Try and imagine with me having a, tick, having a ticket to the wealthy class of Titanic's upper deck. You may drink the finest wines and dance to the finest tunes. You may have all the revelry your heart desires, but the boat will sink in just a few hours. And what then? What then? 
What will be of all of your wealth and accomplishments and travels in those last days, in those last hours? Friend, hear the cry of miseries upon those wealthy passengers as they sink into the frigid waters of the North Atlantic. And repent. Repent. Turn to Christ. Flee to Jesus. Now while you can. And find that which is true wealth in Jesus. Live for him. Turn from, the, turn from the ways that you've deceived and condemned and murdered the righteous person. Turn from the living for the uncertainty of riches. Turn from living primarily for yourself and your own will. And turn to Jesus and find forgiveness and eternal wealth. Live for him. This is the good life. Don't be deceived by the American dream, friend. Find life in Christ, the pearl of great price. Plead with you this morning to do that. And then take up life with us and we'll help you on. Say, take, say now in prayer, say, take the world. Give me Jesus. And if you do, let me leave you and the rest of us with his exhortation. Here's the exhortation. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says there, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Note these words. He does not resist you. Now, I want to be clear about something. We need to do some good hermeneutics here. The point of this passage is not to draw attention to the righteous person as such. It's trying to draw attention to what the self-indulgent is doing to the righteous person. The righteous person, he's trying, the author's helping us see the righteous person is not malicious uh, because of the fraud, but innocently takes the beating of the rich to the rich's shame. But I want to use those last five words in verse 6 as the base of my exhortation to us as a church body. And I want to do so by asking us all a question. Here it is. Why would the righteous person not resist? Why would the righteous person not resist the selfish manipulation of the wealthy that's defrauding? Why would they not resist? Why do they not fight back? Well, flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and you'll get your answer. That should be like three pages to the right. Here's our answer. Why the righteous person doesn't resist. Here we go. I'm going to pick up. I want to read more. But in light of time, I'm going to pick up in verse 15. Peter says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, mindful of God, mindful of God. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to, there's the word, righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your own souls. See, friends, before any other righteous person suffered at the hands of the indulgent, before all of that, Christ suffered before them. He left us, Peter says, an example. And not only an example, but a reward. He was Jesus. He was the only one that was the truly righteous person. He was condemned. He was most definitely murdered for indulgence on the cross. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. He went silently like a lamb to the slaughter. All the while, he could have uttered a word and sent a legion of angels to smoke those dudes. But he didn't. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. In other words, he did not resist the self-indulgent crowds. Now, does that mean that he didn't care for justice? Well, of course he did and still does. It was the entire reason why he went to the cross, because he cares about justice, because he cares about righteousness. What it says there is Jesus, amidst that not resisting, he continued. Why did he not threaten? Why did he not return? He continued entrusting himself to him, his father, who judges justly. He did not need to resist in order to bring about justice because he knew that his heavenly father would inflict justice soon enough. And those dudes would weep and howl in the miseries that were coming upon him. In other words, Jesus took a temporary cross in order to lead to an eternal crown. Whereas those dudes traded a temporary crown that would lead to an eternal cross. Jesus knew he was on a mission. He had his mind set on the kingdom of heaven. He did not resist because he not only knew his father would bring justice, but also that he would purchase justice in order to bring sinners that believe into heaven and heaven eventually to earth. He himself bore the sins of those that trust him in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to what? Righteousness. Same word. It's chapter 5, verse 6 of James. By his wounds, we who believe have been healed. And so now his righteousness has become, those for those that repent and believe on Christ alone for salvation, his atoning work as the efficient thing to bring about our salvation, he gives us his righteousness. His righteousness becomes our righteousness because he has taken our sin on the cross. And now because Christ's righteousness is now, now we're the righteous person. We're supposed to be. We have now returned, we who believe are now returned to the shepherd. Now the Lord is our shepherd, Psalm 23, and now we don't have to want because we have him. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake, not self-indulgence for my namesake. He leaves us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death in this earth, because we do, I won't fear any evil. Why? Because I'm not straying anymore. He found me. I'm with the shepherd, his rod, his staff. They comfort me. My comfort is not ultimately found in padded bank accounts and stable jobs. Our comfort is 
found in the rod and the staff of the Lord who is our shepherd now. We're no longer straying. straying. Now we have righteousness. His righteousness ours. We're with him. He will prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He'll anoint our heads with oil. Our cup overflows. You may be poor, but if you're in Christ, your cup overflows. We have no need to live for anything here as a great end. We have no need to resist the self-indulgence, nor to indulge ourselves, because goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. And one day, one day, we that have given it all to Jesus shall dwell in his house forever. And so we live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil. This is going back to First Peter. Not even resisting the unjust boss. Because we know, we know that our righteousness is a far greater treasure than anything money can buy. Because that righteousness is eternal. And not only that, our righteousness is Jesus' righteousness giving to us. It's perfect in him. And not only that, but it's Jesus' righteousness that brings us back to the shepherd who is the eternal joy of our souls. And in him, we shall not want. In ourselves, we want a lot, don't we? Come on. Amen to that one. Take the world, we say. Give me Jesus and his righteousness. And so there's the exhortation right there. Here it is. Treasure righteousness more than the wealth of money. Treasure the righteousness of Christ more than the wealth of money. Because in him you don't want. You cannot serve both God and money. Don't serve money. It withers. Serve Christ, treasure his righteousness, for it is a kind of wealth that will never fade or wither. It satisfies in the end. Jesus said it himself, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of a fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus and him crucified, resurrected, ascended, and soon returning. His righteousness, his perfection is what your heart is longing for at the bottom of it all. You want wealth, you're supposed to. You find your wealth in Christ. He's your wealth. He's the only place that can satisfy that want. Surrender it all and follow him. And count it all joy, beloved, when you meet trials of various kinds because you're trying to treasure that righteousness. Count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jobs, houses, cars, luxury trips will never make you complete. In all of them, you will still lack. Enjoy them, enjoy them, enjoy them as the Lord would allow. But always know it is only in Christ that you will lack nothing. And so, friend, if you are looking to be made complete, don't live for luxury on the earth. Self-indulgence kills. Live for the luxury of the righteousness of Christ. Treasure his righteousness more than the wealth of money. And in him you shall not want. But instead, you'll be complete, lacking in nothing. And surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And you will eventually dwell in his house forevermore. Self-indulgence kills. But the righteousness of Christ makes us 
complete. And in him, we lack for nothing. Let's pray and ask God to help us in this work. Father, forgive me, forgive us for the ways that we have condemned the righteous person in an effort to try to indulge ourselves. Forgive us for the ways in which we've attempted to be friends with this world. It's hard here, God. Thank you that you offer forgiveness for all of those. All of our sins are paid. And teach us now, Lord, as we still continue to struggle to live for the American dream, teach us to live for your dream for us. A dream that never ends, never fades like the things of the earth do. Teach us to find more joy, more peace, more satisfaction. Teach us to be reminded that in Christ we shall not want. You're all we need. Where else would we go? Thank you that you're so patient with us. We need you, God. Help us to believe this and help our unbelief where we don't. And I thank you for this body of believers that is striving together to get it right. May we be a kind of light on a hill to a world that is fading. May they run to the light and may we point them to you. We love you. Amen.